Mark chapter 14. We are finishing up chapter 14. We are really coming close to the end now. We're going to pick it up in verse 53 and, and race to the end of the chapter in the time that we have left. Mark chapter 14. I've told you before that I'm not much of a news guy, clearly not a political-driven guy, um, but I do have one habit. Every, every morning, for whatever reason, I read the front page of the USA Today, probably because it's an app on my phone and it's easy. Um, I, I want to know what happened while I was asleep. That's good, so I'm not clueless when I go where I go. Uh, but it seems to me like every day there is some world-affecting news, you know, um, that overwhelms the front page. So on Thursday when I was writing these notes at 5 a.m., the predominant articles on Thursday's front page were the responses to the GOP debate, right? Good, bad, pro, whatever. I don't, I don't care. But everybody had an angle. And then there was a couple articles on this, uh, you know, one-child policy in China and I thought, well, that's interesting. These, these news articles are so important in our world today that they made the front page in multiple ways in USA Today. But I just want to point something out. Have, have you noticed that the biggest news on one day j just kind of fades away as the news of the next day kind of pushes it out? You, you know that, right? Which tells me a couple things about myself, and if, if you can relate to this. I don't remember the news of five years ago. I mean, someone said, what happened? I would, I would not know. Um, and to be fair, I'd probably say I don't care, which tells me, maybe if you relate to that, of the importance or the lack thereof, the importance of the things that we merit newsworthy, all right? And uh, to be honest, uh, not much will be changed by the news that happened Thursday or Friday or today, v very little. But there is something so radically different about the events that we're reading here in Mark's gospel so much bigger in this text. The events around and surrounding the death of Jesus are the most, and this is no exaggeration whatsoever, they are the most significant events in all of human history, so much so that news from 2,000 years ago still affects every man, woman, child who lives in every corner of the world and every person who has ever lived. This news affects everyone. And, and you might not care to know this, but it affects you whether you buy it or not. And that's part of a part of the so what that we're going to have today. This is significant news. And the story that we pick up today in the life of Christ is this trial of, of Jesus in a kangaroo court in Israel, this phony trial. And what, what I really want to do, because I'm, I'm dealing not only with this trial, but Peter's denial, I want to kind of twist it and, and tell you that I really believe there's two trials going on here. One for Jesus and one for Peter, although Peter is unaware of it at the time. So that's how we're going to play this together. So let's do as we always do. Let's stop and ask for the Holy Spirit's intervention. Um, there is already so much opposition. I told the eight o'clock service that sometimes, sometimes I wake up and my brain just does not want to work. And, and uh, that tells me that I know what my future will be. But either way, um, <laughs> e either way, I know that there's a lot of spiritual opposition to saying anything about Jesus. Would you agree? And so we need to stop and pray that he shows up here and he takes these words and he applies it specifically to all of our hearts. So let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. He is the hero of every story. He is the point of all that we talk about. He is the joy of our hearts. He is our hope. He is that to those who even don't know it. My prayer today is that as we get close to unpacking this story of Jesus, that you would reveal that to those who are still in doubt. 
And that to those of us who have already settled that discussion about who Christ is, that he'd become more beautiful and more lovely and that he would receive all glory, honor, and praise. And we pray that in his name, amen, amen. All right, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priests and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priests and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For they bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with, with blows. Let's, uh, let's unpack this scene, what's going on here. Uh, if you were here last week, we looked at the arrest of Jesus. He was in the garden praying, knowing what was about to come. And he has been, he's been arrested. And if you add all the gospel accounts together, Jesus has taken a little journey to get where he is now. In fact, the, the, the account of, in uh, John tells us that he made his way to the former high priest's house first, Ananias. And then on his way to Caiaphas' house, which is where we are at in this story, okay? And Caiaphas is the, the high priest that's presiding over this trial. And it's after midnight and the 70, the Sanhedrin, all the leaders of Israel by torchlight are coming in to Caiaphas' house for this emergency last-minute trial of Jesus. And the Sanhedrin would circle around the accused kind of in a semicircle, somewhat stadium seating so that everyone gets a view of what's going on. To the right and the left would be court reporters, people to, to jot down the accusations and the evidence to make certain that everything goes as planned. The role of this court was pretty specific. It was kind of a buffer organization between Israel and, and uh, the Romans. Because no self-respecting Jew really wanted to be any, have any part in a Gentile um, Roman authority or rule or control. And so the Romans were smart enough to know that. And so they set up this representative court. And that's the role that these guys are playing at this moment. And their job was to uh, decide and make decisions regarding religious matters and some political matters as they influenced the, the people, okay? But most writers would say, specifically regarding this idea of capital punishment, that, that this court did not have the exclusive right to declare capital punishment. They needed help from Rome. They had to do it in concert with Rome. So this was not on their plate completely and, and solely alone. Now, on the surface, knowing who's there and what their role is and everything else, there's a, there's a part of it that looks fairly legitimate from a distance. I mean, everybody's there doing what they're supposed to do in the role that they were asked to play, right? But here's what you need to know. Everything that's going on at this moment is illegal by their rules and by, by their law. Everything that, that the Sanhedrin are involved in is violating the judicial 
procedures based on the Mishnah. Remember, the Mishnah is the oral traditions, okay? They have the written law of God, but the fairies would take that written law and they would kind of lay out the details of how to do that law. And in the Mishnah, that particular response to the law of God were all the details of trials like this, and they, they basically broke all the rules when it comes to the trial of Jesus. Let me uh, just mention a few of them. In uh, capital cases like this, a guilty verdict required a second trial the next day, bright and early. You had to have two of them. In order to sentence someone to death, you had to have this trial twice. We want to make certain that we don't um, do this wrong. Someone's life is at stake. Well, we know that didn't happen. Jesus had one trial. Both of those trials were to take place during the day. This happened in the third watch of the night. Um, Trials like this were not to take place on the eve of any kind of special event, some festival or some Sabbath. Here we have Passover, and they're breaking the law by having this trial. Witnesses are no different than our court system today. They were warned against false testimony or any kind of rumors. You don't bring that in here. This is only facts, and yet the text tells us they were bringing in false testimony, okay? And specifically, the charge of blasphemy... um, that couldn't be made unless someone's accused of, of, of cursing God's name itself, and you had to hear it. So we are outside of the bounds of that accusation as well. And there was a particular place that these trials were to take place in, the, in this hewn stone, or the chamber of the hewn stone, which is right next to the temple, not in Caiaphas's house, not at night, middle of the watch of night. So all of these particulars to this trial are outside of the bounds of what's right. It's all illegal. Now, I want you to notice beyond what's illegal, I want you to notice that it's super, super intentional, okay? This is a totally sham court. They have already decided that he's guilty and he's going to die. They are now just looking for the charges to, to be able to do that, okay? Verse 55 tells us, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They already knew what they wanted to do. There was no doubt in their minds what, what had to happen, but here was a big problem. It was the last half of verse 55, but they found none. They couldn't find testimony against Jesus. So um, it's interesting to me that uh, they had the best witnesses money could buy, but they could not collectively come together on a story against him. They could not even make up charges. They couldn't agree on the charges. In fact, our law specifically demanded that there had to be two or three witnesses agreeing on any particular charge, and they couldn't get two. That's what the text makes clear. They planned the whole thing. Just imagine, you're planning a sham trial. This is a kangaroo court. You already know he's going to die. All you got to do is get these two liars to agree on the lie, and you've got your man. But they couldn't do that. The text says they tripped over themselves trying to tell a story that King had a common thread. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't do it, Okay. Their testimony didn't agree, verse 56 says. If, if I back to the 55, there's something just I want to point out. They were seeking testimony. The, the idea is plural stories about Jesus they could bring against him. Now, stop for a second. There is a, uh, there's a, an actual accusation about the temple coming up, but my guess is at this moment there is a, a section of time that happened in this trial where they were just throwing everything at the dartboard, hoping something would stick at Jesus. After all, through our study of the gospel, we've seen many times they've charged Jesus with things, right? And my guess is that there's just a flood of, well, he said this, or he did this, or he was there, or he didn't do that, and all these things started coming in, but they couldn't, they couldn't line up the charges. We've seen some of these accusations before in Mark chapter 3, where he is casting out demons. They say he's doing it by the power of Satan. Remember that? That's what he's doing. 
Or when he is in Mark 7, he is eating, and according to the Pharisees, he's not eating with clean hands, so he's doing it in an unworthy way. And Jesus deals with both of those charges, those accusations with, a, with Scripture and with wisdom. How are you going to accuse a man of anything um, of, of being guilty if he's delivering people from the power of Satan? How can you accuse him? How can you accuse him for honoring God over man's traditions? And we know how those stories end. These people just shut up and go away. He wins. There's nothing to say. And my guess is in this section, there's a lot of accusations happening t- towards Jesus. But particularly with their goal in mind, in order to kill Jesus, there has to be two kinds of crimes to find him guilty of. One crime would have to be a Jewish crime. One had to be one that the law of God warrants a death penalty for. And and because they did not have the exclusive right to capital punishment, he also had to be um, known for committing a crime against Rome. All right? So both, both parties have to agree that's a problem he needs to die. Verse 58 is their attempt We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. If they could somehow prove that Jesus was going to ruin the temple, which would be their version of a capital offense, and that event would obviously cause an uprising with the people, which would be a problem with the Romans, maybe we could get him. Maybe that would be enough. And that was their attempt. Verse 59, though, Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They couldn't come to any kind of agreement, probably because he never said he would destroy the temple. Now, he has said things about the temple and about himself, but he never said he would destroy the temple. He just said he would destroy a temple. If we, we didn't introduce it, but in John's gospel, in John chapter 2, he talks about destroying this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. Now, those of us who have studied the Scripture knows what he's talking about. He's referring to his body, the, the temple that he was coming to die, that he would, he would be destroyed and be risen again and raised up. And so he was talking about that gospel picture, and they heard something else. In, in Mark chapter 13, we have just seen this, but Jesus and his disciples are walking past the temple, and they see this beautiful building, and Jesus says, those stones won't be on top of each other when this is all said and done. Now, my guess is the combination of all those statements about the temple and destruction and probably got to the place of being confused and not being able to agree about the testimony. Either way, either way, the high priest is extremely exasperated at this point. We had this all set up. We had this planned. You were going to say this, and you were going to say that, and we got him. But they couldn't agree. They were confused. And all the text tells us about Jesus and what he's doing at this moment is he's staying silent, just like the prophet Isaiah said he would. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's how Jesus is responding to accusations, whether they be others or this particular one about the temple. But you have to understand something, that in the back of Caiaphas' mind, in the back of all these leaders' mind who were sitting in that circle, they already knew the reason why they were there. They knew why he had to die because they heard him say he had authority. And they had heard him say that he was God's son. And it was over. In their mind, they'd already crossed that line. And uh, they were ready for that. And they just needed to get some evidence on it. In fact, from the very beginning of this gospel story, I think they knew what Jesus claimed about himself. In Mark chapter 2, this was eight months ago we studied this. 
Jesus heals the paralytic. Remember that? And the way he does it in a very strange way. He says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. He's still crippled. He hasn't gotten up. He says, your sins are forgiven. The scribes in the background, guys at this meeting, at this trial said, wait a minute, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus makes a point, clearly, so that you might know that I have the authority to forgive sins, rise and walk. They knew right from the beginning who he claimed to be. He had not... He had said it in different forms and different fashions, and they called him on blasphemy then. In Mark chapter 3, when the scribes accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan, um, he makes this statement that a house divided against itself will not stand, and then he tells a parable to make his point. That if you're going to go and bind the strong man, somebody stronger has to do it, implying that he is the stronger man over Satan, and they knew what he meant. We just saw this in, in Mark chapter 12, but it is a parable that Jesus tells to, to deal with the, the religious leaders of the time, and he tells this story about this landowner, this vineyard owner, who has tenants. And in this story, Israel are the tenants. And the landowner kept sending servants to the tenants, right? Servants, prophets, people, representatives to speak for God. And what did they do to those prophets? They disregarded them, and they killed them. Finally, the landowner says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. And so he does, and they kill him. The text tells us plainly what they understood. It says that they knew he was talking about them. Now, what it doesn't say, what I think is also implied in that story, is that they knew that that story of the beloved son was him, that he was God's son. I don't think it's a mystery of what he, he's never said it in a sentence form before. But over and again in these different examples, they knew why they had to get rid of him. He claims authority over us. He claims to be God's one and only son, okay? They knew exactly why he was there. So at this point, Caiaphas pulls no punches. He says, be done with the testimony, okay? I'm just going to come out straight and ask you, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, that's the way it reads in the English. In the original language, it reads more like a statement implying a question, which is even more, I think, provocative when you hear who it comes from. Caiaphas says it this way. You're the Christ, the son of the blessed? Like a statement that's supposed to have people in the, in the background doubt whether it's true, but it's, it's interesting the word for blessed is, is God's son. And I read a commentary this week from James Edwards that points out in this particular section that so far in this trial that no one has been agree on Jesus. Nothing can stick. And yet, um, in the question of the high priest, he confesses the most clear answer of who Jesus is in all of the scriptures. In his one little response. In fact, he says it this way, how ironic that in the gospel of Mark, the two most complete Christological confessions from humans occur in the mouths of those responsible for Jesus' death. Caiaphas, the high priest at his trial, and the centurion, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, behold, the Son of God. Two unbelievers have the most clear depicted statement about who Jesus is in all the gospel. Very, very interesting. From the very beginning, though, if you've been here for eight months, um, we've known who Jesus is. There's no mystery in it in Mark's gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1. Remember how that started? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Everything else from that point on, from verse 1, chapter 1, was to give evidences to the reality of who Jesus is, to paint the stories of what he did and who he healed and what he said and how he lived. That's what Mark has, has done for us. And in verse 62 of this chapter, publicly for the first time, Jesus comes out with the words, I am. He has told his 
disciples privately. He has, when Peter confessed him as Lord, he says, you're right, keep it down, right? Over and over again, when people got close to the, to the declaration of who he was, they, he told him to keep it quiet as he did his ministry. But here, first time ever, publicly, he answers with the two most powerful words, at least in a Jewish mindset, he could possibly answer. He says it, verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. Now, you should have a big, fat, huge, humongous comma after that because I believe Jesus said that and, let it, and just let it hang. I don't think he raced off to say anything else. I think he said, I am. Because in everybody's mind that was sitting in that council bringing charges against Jesus, they knew exactly what he was saying. Everyone knew I am is what God called himself when he was making a covenant to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. And you're going to have a family that outnumbers the stars of heaven. And he says, I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Everyone knew. When Moses is at the burning bush and he's having this conversation with God. And Moses says, how do I tell? Who do I tell am I, that, that I'm representing? And he says, I am who I am. I've always been and I always will be. Use that for my name. I am is the name of God. So however long that kind of hung in the air, I can just see the red faces, but either way, right on the heels of that, Jesus interprets it by referring to two um, Old Testament texts, and he kind of pulls them together and homogenizes them into one statement about who he is in verse 62, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's directly a, a hodgepodge of Daniel 7 and Matthew 1.10 where the scriptures make it very clear that the Son of Man is coming with the clouds in heaven and that, he, um, that God the Father says, sit at my right hand until I can make your enemies your footstool. That's what those two passages talk about. Jesus blends them together to talk not only about who he is, but what he does, which is really, really interesting to me. This is far more than a claim to be the Messiah, although he is, and we know that. This is a declaration of what kind of Messiah he is. In their minds, in every Hebrew mind, a Messiah already had a definition, a shape. He was going to be this guy. And he was going to deliver us from Rome. And he was going to give us some dignity back. And we're going we're to have our king. And this is, these are the thoughts they thought. But no one, no one had a clue that he was coming to suffer. Like that's the only reason he came, ultimately at this point, to suffer. And so Jesus in his answer says... I dwell where God dwells and I come only as God comes. That's how he says his answer to to their question. That's what everyone heard at the circle. That's what Caiaphas heard. I am God in essence and I am your judge. I know what this is. This is a sham trial and you're trying to bring charges against me. That's not how this is going to go down. I'll bring charges against you. It's interesting to me in, in verse 63... The response was immediate and extreme. The high priest tore his garments and said to everyone, we don't need any more testimony. We don't need any more witnesses. He said enough. You've heard the blasphemy for yourself. Um, just stop for a second. Just really important to, to make sure you understand this. Um, the charge of blasphemy isn't because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. That's not why he's being accused. It wasn't a crime to call yourself a Messiah, and it wasn't a crime to have someone else say that you're the Messiah. This is a charge of blasphemy, and blasphemy is simply to equate yourself with God or ascribe God's honor to yourself. When Jesus said, I am, they knew that was it. You say you're him. 
we can't even say his name, and you said you're him. That's the blasphemy. And Caiaphas heard it. Jesus is God, and as soon as he does, he jumps to the conclusion. He is condemned to die, and they begin to spit on him. The most humbling, humiliating act you could. It was a physical way to say, no, you're not. You're so on him that you're worth spit, is the response. They covered his head, and they started to punch him in the face. They started to mock him. Interesting here, you remember who's doing this, right? This is the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees made up a large portion of it. The Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural. For them to say, Jesus, tell us who's hitting you now, was like saying, yeah, you believe in prophecy? There's no such thing as prophecy. Let me prove it to you. Boom, who hit you? And they mocked him. They spit on him. So I think there's so much irony in this particular section. I want to just mention a few of the things that stick out to me, but... The testimony that the Sanhedrin wanted, and they were there to get him guilty so they could kill him. The testimony they wanted didn't come from all these planned witnesses. The testimony of what they wanted came from Jesus himself. How ironic is that? We want him dead. And all the money in the world couldn't buy them the right kind of witnesses Jesus the Son did. Jesus stands on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, but one day, in a twist of events, he will stand as the judge over them. The Sanhedrin make fun of him in, in this discussion of prophecy, but ultimately every prophecy Jesus ever mentioned will come true. <laughs> it's interesting. And really the ultimate irony of ironies is it's the high priest himself who has committed blasphemy and not the son. Such a twist in events. Let, let me make this point before I, I move on. And uh, there's things to learn about Peter's life, but let me just make this point. This Jesus, if you would look at me please, forces you to pick. Do you understand what I said? You do not have the luxury of saying he was a good man, that he was some kind of social reformer, that he, he was some kind of revolutionary or a moral example. He doesn't give you that right. He claims himself to be God, and he forces us to have to pick. Do we believe that? I, I, to, I tell you all the time, I, I, every time I get down to say, okay, how do you apply this stuff? I, I just have to believe that there are many in here who don't know Jesus. Or there's many of you in here who've tried really hard and you don't know Jesus. Or you're just in a really good Jesus environment and so you think because you're in that environment you're going to get him on you and you don't know Jesus. You, you have to pick. He, he has taken options o- away from us. A great moral teacher doesn't say he's God and he's coming as a judge. He doesn't, he doesn't do that when he's not. Jesus demands that we make a decision. In his claims, he says that he is the one and only, that he is the judge, that he's coming in power, and that he is the savior of the world exclusively. That's what he says. Peter, who we're going to look at in just a minute, declares it to the chief priests and the leaders of Israel, the same kind of people who are here accusing Jesus of blasphemy. It's Peter who stands before them after the resurrection and he preaches one of the greatest sermons ever given. After he's been arrested, he speaks to those leaders and he makes this definitive declaration about Jesus and he says, there is salvation in no other name, no one else, for there is no name under heaven by which men must be saved, period, that's it. 
There's no other hope other than Jesus. If he isn't, if he isn't God with God's righteousness, his gift to us by grace doesn't cover our sin. Not for one minute, let alone our life. We need a covering so complete and so perfect. It has to be his. Do you understand? The only way for God to even tolerate us is to see us through the lens of Jesus. And we talk about words like this all the time. It's by, it's by grace. It's a gift. It's free. It has to be because I can't, I can't afford it. You can't afford it. Nobody can work enough or be good enough to merit their own righteousness. That has to be from and of God, doesn't it? That's the truth of this gospel. Jesus, um, or John tells us the words of Jesus when he's talking to Nicodemus about who he is and why he came. Listen to this now. I'm going to read it out of the message, which is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. I'm doing it on purpose because you're so familiar with the passage. So just listen to this in a new, fresh way, okay? This is Jesus. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and a lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Now listen very carefully. Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. There's one Son. There's one Savior. There's one sacrifice for sin. And it's Jesus. He says it to these leaders who want to destroy him. I am. I am. Nobody knew why he came. Nobody understood the suffering servant. We do. We can see it. And if you're one of those who are still thinking that it's okay to be close to Jesus and be okay with a kind of Jesus, but you don't embrace this Jesus, your life's at stake. And I'm not trying to dramatize it, okay? I'm trying to tell you the truth. You have to pick. His answer forces ours. Do you understand? All right, let's move on. Let's look in the time we have left. A few minutes at Peter's trial. Verse 66 the end of the chapter. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you're also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to the bystanders, this man was one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I want you to picture the scene, okay? Where Jesus is being tried is in this, this prominent home of Caiaphas. And homes in that day were a courtyard surrounded by rooms. All right? That's, that's the... the, the the location. It's a very open place. But somehow, where Jesus is being tried in a room, Peter and those in the courtyard are able to see. Luke tells us that somehow Peter and Jesus could make eye contact. So that trial is going on with that kind of proximity. And so while Jesus is under trial, here in this one section, Peter is facing his own trial. 
Now, we don't know this too much detail other than after Jesus was arrested and everybody split, including Peter, somehow Peter doubled back, probably to deliver on his promise that I'm never going to let you down, Jesus. So here he is. He's mustered up at least enough courage to mosey into the courtyard under all this opposition to Jesus. He just wants to see it, I guess, or, or maybe be close enough to Jesus if he needs him. Who knows? But there in that contained, intense environment, kind of illuminated by fire, Peter is recognized. Not once, not twice, but three times. Servant girls and a bunch of bystanders. Now, um, my guess is he was, he was spotted because many of those people had watched for years this ministry of Jesus and his closest followers travel the countryside. Wouldn't take much to just notice this band of followers everywhere they went and to say, he looks familiar, he looks familiar. Peter's also kind of brash, kind of bold, isn't he? He's the guy who was always talking up, and maybe someone was close enough to the courtyard or or the the garden to see him defend Jesus with his sword. Maybe they saw that. The text tells us that he was Galilean. Matthew says that he was given away by his accent. So this is like a guy from Texas, you know, showing up in Massachusetts. You're going to notice, all right? You're going to spot him either way. Three confrontations, three trials, three denials. Jesus has just told Peter in the garden, pray with me, not once, but three times. And he says to him, Peter, you have no idea how weak the flesh is. You just don't have any idea how weak the flesh is. Well, Peter's about to find out. All this, all this confidence, all this certainty of who he is or what he thinks he knows, and it falls apart under acquisitions from some girls. A man who once bragged that even if everyone else bails on you, Jesus, I, I won't. I'll be the last man standing. I, I promise. I promise. And as soon as he is uh, kind of questioned the third time, Peter kind of declares a curse on himself, and he just says he doesn't know. The rooster crows like Jesus said he would. And Luke puts a very poignant moment in here. In Luke chapter 22, the text tells us that Jesus stopped and turned and caught eyes with Jesus the moment he denied the third time. Can you imagine Can you imagine after all of your certainty and confidence and all the time, all the years with Jesus and he has just been accused of blasphemy. The the sentence is death. You have just made this bold declaration of which you've fallen three times and he looks at you, not to your eyes, but to your soul and finds you lacking. That's the moment. That's the intensity of the moment. And Peter goes away and it says he was crushed. He was crushed. He remembered what Jesus said and he wept. You want to know an interesting kind of twist to this thing, a reality of it? There's some truth in Peter's denial. Because I don't believe Peter really did know Jesus. Not this Jesus. Not the suffering servant Jesus. Remember, Peter's the one who said, you're never going to die, not on my watch. He's the one who pulled the sword to try to stop it. I think Peter had a version of Messiah, too, that has yet to be fully understood. He will get there. But at this point, for him to know what Jesus was doing by willingly putting himself in harm's way for the benefit of sinners like us, for him to say, I don't know who you're talking about, is sort of true from a twisted angle, right? But either way, Peter's crushed at this moment. The vision, his vision of Jesus is over, seems over. His greatest failure is out loud in public, and he's got a broken heart. Now, let me just quickly, I've got 29 seconds to make a point, okay? 
There are so many things I suppose we could learn from Peter's life, but let me just give you a few of them. If anything, it reminds us that not even the best or the strongest Christian is immune to failure. Right? Have you ever been surprised by what comes out of you? Anybody? It's okay. You can nod your head. Have you ever been shocked by the things you're, you fall in love with? Or the sin you think you have a right to? It's in us, isn't it? If there's anything, you could look at Peter and go, man, you know, he was close to Jesus for three and a half years. I mean, I've got to assume he had some understanding greater than mine. Some affection more, more developed than mine. If there's anything you learn, that the strongest Christian has a lot of weakness in his game, right? A lot of weakness. But this is the best part. And I'm certain you can see it coming. Not only does Peter's story remind us that nobody in here is immune to failure and some radical failure at that, it also reminds us of anything that nobody in here is beyond the unbelievable grace of God to cover. This is the part where you go, amen. Because that's the good part. We are failures. And we do deny. And we walk away from time to time. But his grace super abounds over us, church. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, but where sin increased, what's it say? Grace abounded all the more. This is not a license to go sin so you experience more grace. It's simply a reality. You can't sort it all out, and you won't sort it all out. And you're going to have these moments where you say, Jesus, today is January 1st, 2016. This is my new journal, and I promise today I'm going to spend every day with you until you come back. How many journals do you have with a date? On the top of it. We all do. We can't even do simple things. But the reality of God through Christ our Savior is that God came in the person of Jesus to give us what we couldn't get anywhere else. Perfect righteousness. His covering for our sinfulness by faith alone, through his grace alone. There is nobody who stands before the Father and says, oh, and by the way, I've got something else other than grace to offer you. I was really great one time. That doesn't work that way. The only hope, and this is the beauty of the gospel, sinners who are completely crippled in their inabilities run to the cross and receive the superabounding provision of Jesus for us and in us and through us. That's what we get. We get righteousness not of our own. Amen. Amen. You know how the story of Peter ends, don't you? It should encourage you, not that we're all going to have it end this well, but after Pentecost, when, when Peter finally discovers what Jesus and what Messiah he's talking about, he stands boldly in one of the two top three, maybe best sermons ever preached in front of the public and presents Jesus, the suffering servant, and 3,000 people get saved after one sermon. The nickname that Jesus gave that early on sounds like a punchline, Peter, you're the rock, ultimately becomes true because he is this pillar of the church, this foundational piece of what God was doing. 34 years after the resurrection, Peter was in Rome, this place that he feared with people that formerly he was afraid of, 
presenting a Jesus that he cowered from, and he presented it in a, in a particular way, bold and courageous, and for that, he was crucified upside down. He finished well. So, you've heard it said before, failure isn't fatal, nor is it final. But can I give you one last thing? And I know I'm going over. I said 30 seconds. I lied. Um, we don't just deny him with words. You know that, right? We deny him with our lives. I don't know how many Christians in America today, or Gilbert or whatever, who actually are going to be forced to face a, a tribunal and say, do you, what do you think of Jesus? Most of us won't ever have to do that. But tomorrow morning when you get up and you get in your car and you drive to work and someone suggests to you a shady deal because you'll make profit, you are denying him with your life. When, when you decide that your marital struggles or your problems out are bigger than God's ability to deal with it and you have no capacity to forgive those who offend you or to love your enemy, you're denying him with your life. You have to face this, Right? You don't just have to say he's not the son of God. You can live like it in your actions. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, here's what I know. When I got done with this sermon, I was convicted. And so I prayed then what I'll pray for you now, and that God would superabound again. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gospel that is so perfect and so complete and covers us forever because of Jesus' work on the cross. We praise his name. We pray it in his name. Amen.